Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the fifth in our short season of iFi podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. In this episode, we'll take you back to the darkened cinema spaces we're currently missing so much for a seasonal summer blockbuster trip down memory lane. Later in the show, we'll speak to iFi projectionist and film obsessive Paul Markey about his memories of Dublin's city centre cinemas in their 80s and 90s heyday. But first, when he's not on the radio or stuck into a book, broadcaster Rick O'Shea is most likely to be found hanging out in his local cinema. A self-proclaimed movie nerd who recently introduced Terry Gilliam's Brazil at the IFI's Bigger Picture Strand, he joins us now with his summer film memories. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Stephen, finally somebody asks me onto a movie podcast where I get to talk about movies. This has never happened before. I've never been asked onto anything to talk about movies. So this is completely, you know, virgin territory for me. I'm genuinely excited about it. I can't believe that that's the case. That's a disgrace. (laughs) <laughs> no, it isn't. Because you know what? It's one of those things whereby, you know, because I don't really do anything in the movie world, aside from, as you said, every now and then, guys like yourself are very kind to allow me to, to introduce movies because I have no real professional interest in that. I'm not a reviewer. I'm just a kind of passionate, you know, uh, outsider. Uh, I, I tend not to get asked about this stuff, but believe me, you, I've got plenty to say. So you knock yourself out. We've plenty of time here and I'm in no hurry. <laughs> um, we're, we're very much missing the cinema, yes? Yeah, and... I, I know there's that, that that strange thing about, you know, I've had conversations with a couple of people who do the whole, well, shirt is not the most important thing in the world now, is it? And no, it's not. However, you know, I don't really do a lot of other stuff. I go to the theatre, so I miss that. I go to the movies, and so I miss that. I go, you know, to restaurants every now and then, so I miss that. I don't really miss the whole being in pubs and being with large groups of people. I'm not really into that. Me and my other half, you know, the two of us, we, we you know, this is our thing. We, you know, we go to, to the cinema. We pick out things that we deliberately like to see. To be honest with you, we would find ourselves more often in your part of the world than in large multiplexes. There's obviously certain times you could go and see, see big budget block busters these days but it's one of those things that i'm now at the point where i'm itching for it and i don't mind how far away i have to be from other people because i'm going to be honest with you i'm the sort of person who prior to all this used to socially distance himself from other people in cinemas anyway i'm that guy who's three rows from the front sitting over on the very edge because it means that he's not within 10 feet of anyone so i'm fully prepared for this when we come back i can never understand people who said that they didn't like to go to the cinema by themselves no, what's wrong with these people? So, well, you know, I mean, it might have been that, you know, it started off when I was a teenager and I didn't really have a lot of friends. So I found myself in, you know, darkened cinemas, early, late 80s and early 1990s. And, you know, once you get into the habit of, of doing that, if you're seriously into it, like when I was a teenager, when I started going into movies by myself in town, I would have found myself in places like the Adelphi and the Savoy, even the Carlton, which was still open in, in those days. I would have found myself in the original lighthouse back when it was down on Middle Abbey Street, just up from from where um, Arnott's is is now. And I would have found myself going off to see a lot of the time, you know, stuff my mates weren't interested in. They had no interest in coming to see, you know, Jean-Paul Rapineau's Serrano de Bergerac with me when I was 17. So I I made my bed and I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to stand on that all these years later. What's your earliest memory of going to the cinema? I, I'm not 100% sure. So this is either a fabrication that has now, I've managed to convince myself is the real thing or not. I'm fairly sure the first movie I remember seeing in 
a cinema cinema was bed knobs and broomsticks with Angela Lansbury. So one of the lesser known Disney live action slash animation movies. I think that was the first one I went to see. Now I have very little memory of that, to be honest with you. My first major memory of going to a movie, and I may have mentioned this when I did the intro to Brazil. I went into town with my dad and my brother. He brought us to see Superman. So it would have been, I think it was, it was late 79 or early 80. So I was like almost seven at that point. And we went into town to see Superman. I think it was the Savoy and we arrived in. And because it was such a sensation, when we arrived, the queue was all the way heading up O'Connell Street, around the corner into Cahalbrua Street and off into the distance. So there was no way we were getting into the screening we went to. And so my dad, obviously faced with seven-year-old, you know, really upset me, saw that there was a space film across the road and he knew I liked space stuff. He was like, do you want to go see that thing? I'm like, okay, yes, not Superman, but it'll be fine. And across the road was Capricorn One. Capricorn One, in case you've never seen it, is a, it's a kind of mid-Cold War conspiracy theory movie in which the Americans fake the first landing on Mars because something terrible has gone wrong with, with the rocket that they're going to use. So they fake the first landing on Mars. And then uh, the CIA has to kill the astronauts involved. They will be accidentally killed on their way back to Earth. I'm using air quotes here, and I realize that I'm now on a podcast, and you can't see that. So then the three guys, uh, three astronauts, one of whom is O.J. Simpson, kidding you not, has to go on the run through the desert from where they've been filming this fake Mars landing and attempt to save their own lives. And I think that really has kind of angled my interest in movies for the rest of my life. You know, I haven't seen it in a very long time. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I remember the running through the desert. I remember the fake Mars landing. I remember that uh, OJ is in it and Thanos's dad is in it, uh, James Brolin. And other than that, I've got very little else. I seem to remember in my head but I was very satisfied when it finished. And then to be honest with you, I spent most of my kind of like when I was 12, 13, 14, watching stuff on Movie Drop on TV when Alex Cox used to introduce them on BBC Two and when Mark Cousins did it later on. So I saw a load of those other movies that were all of that era. And I think that definitely influenced, you know, what I was into for, for the rest of my life. It's a part that's no longer a part of summer blockbuster season, but those really big films where you'd have to stand in a queue on the street and then kind of be n- nervously looking up at the top to see where you're going to get into this one or would you have to just stand on the street for another two hours before you got into the four o'clock show yeah 100 percent. and it's i know it makes you sound like back in my day we used to queue for the cinema we had to do it in the street in the rain but i, I was i was of a, a an age that when i went to start you know to go see movies by myself when i was like maybe 15 16 you still had to queue it was before it was only when uci really came along in tala they were the first kind of proper real major multiplex and uh, I, I lived in Crumlin and I went to school in, uh, in Drimna and Walkinstown. So we were on the bus routes up to, up to UCI. So when it opened, the idea that you could pre-book your ticket like a week in advance and walk up and go, I shall not be queuing with the rest of you. I have a ticket that I have pre-booked. That was magic because, you know, prior to that, we all went and we stood in a queue and you either got in or you didn't. And, you know, you've asked me to pick one blockbuster that we're going to talk about. And that's a perfect example of making sure that I was there as early as possible on the day so I could go see that movie. But that was something that was certainly a couple of summers, I think summers of maybe 88, 89 and 90, which were my last like two or three years in school, where, you know, anytime a big movie came out on the Friday, chances are I was there for what was usually like the 12 o'clock screening, the first screening in, in a place like the Savoy or whatever was about, about 12 o'clock and chances are I was there for it. 
we're going to talk to Paul Markey about Dublin cinemas a little later on, but what was your favourite Dublin cinema in the 80s and 90s? I, I don't know if I can make a choice. Now, the Carlton, we all remember, the Carlton smelled of urine, so it was never anybody's real favourite. Certainly allegedly, when I used to go there. Allegedly smelled yeah, of urine. <laughs> they're, they're, they're long since gone now, we can say that. Um, I used to love going to Savoy to scream one when it still existed, rest in peace. Uh, and I used to still love going to Savoy one up until the point where it was um, subdivided. I certainly loved the Adelphi and I knew every screen in the Adelphi intimately right the way from number one all the way up the top all the way down to the little flea pity forms down at the bottom. I loved the Metropole which then became the screen in Delir Street but it was called the Metropole for years before that and my local cinema kind of was the classic in Harold's Cross. So because I, I, I lived in Crumlin and grew up in Crumlin the closest place to us was you hopped on the 18 bus and it would leave you right outside the classic. So I saw, I saw a few things there when I was a kid as well. As you mentioned, you've picked out um, a one summer blockbuster that you remember uh, particularly. And the first thing um, I noticed about this, that it was released here in August 89, um, but that was six weeks after the US release. And we're talking about Tim Burton's Batman. I mean, that it was common at the time, but completely unheard of nowadays. Yeah, and I thought about this actually back when I went to see it with, with you guys fairly recently when you did the 70 mil screening and trying to explain to your kids that films would open in America and, you know, maybe two months later, it still wouldn't have opened in Ireland. It, it's, it's a weird one, initially, the first time I tried to explain that to my kids. But of course, you've got to remember, it was 1989. We had no internet. We had no, like, 24-hour rolling news channels. So we had no idea of what the film was like. You know, you may have read some sort of advance article in, in one of the, the major newspapers, but probably not. It was 1989. Maybe Barry Norman mentioned it on Film 89. You may have seen a little bit about that. But that lag in time that happened... Obviously, at the time, because of physical availability of prints, the prints would be, uh, you know, they would screen them in certain cinemas in America. And then once the interest started to die off, they'd take all of those prints and then ship them around the world and, and, and use them elsewhere. That was something that we just, you know, sucked up and got, and got on with. There were times where it could be six months. So six weeks at the time seemed like a relatively short period of time. And I remember there was a huge buzz in advance of it, primarily because it was a proper Batman film coming out for the first time. Prince had done the soundtrack album as well, which I owned and loved in advance. I even bought Danny Elfman's score album in advance, which I listened to. I used to be quite heavily into score albums when I was a kid. So I, I, was, I was as buzzed, I think, as a, as a whatever 16-year-old kid could be at the time. And when it opened, I chose the Adelphi, I think either because it was only showing in the Adelphi and not the Savoy. Frequently, you know, it, it wasn't the way it is now, whereby you have, you know, obviously the same major blockbusters showing at all the multiplexes. A film would either come out in the Adelphi or the Savoy. You know, there was obviously some sort of, you know, turf war went on between, between the two of them as a result of that. I remember going down on the day, I brought my brother with me. So he would have been 13 and I was 16. And we were in the queue from, uh, from whatever time it was like, 8 a.m. that morning or half eight, we, we were standing in the queue on Middle Abbey Street and I got talking to a guy who was in the queue in front of us from Washington and he was on holidays in Ireland and he was like, no, I've got to be in the queue. I've got to go see the film. I've got to see it here because I'm on holidays. And I saw it once there. I think I saw it two or three times more there. I saw it at least once in the Carlton and I think I saw it maybe eight or nine times overall because I, I loved it that much. And I wanted to re-experience it again and again and again. And, you know, you're 16. It's the summer holidays. You can, you can afford to. We were talking about this earlier on. Um, I, remember, I went to see it in the Adelphi as well. And I remember when I went into the screen first and just really simply they had a bat logo 
up on the screen and usually when you go into the cinema there's nothing there it's all black and it's all quiet it it felt like this was something different that this was something special just by that one simple thing of having that really iconic logo on the screen uh, I, I don't know if you saw it in, in screen one, because I know they were, I think they were showing it in more than one screen in the Adelphi, but if anybody is old enough to remember screen one in the Adelphi, you, it was a very old fashioned cinema screen. So you'd walk up into it, the screen was immediately in front of you, and then you either turned left or right and walked up behind you into what were my favorite seats, which were the seats that were immediately above the door. And then there was a kind of bank of seats all the way down at the front. And then you push your way up either left or right. I'm old enough to remember as well that when it may have happened for that particular Batman screening that they would segregate the kids in a specific area of the screen so I remember if you had screen one in the Delphi you'd walk up and take a right and there were ushers there who would if you were under a certain age if you were like 10 11 whatever you were specifically putting the kids area over on the right hand side whether it was you know to keep you out of the way of the paying adults or away from the smokers I, I, I don't know what it was but I, I'm not sure where I saw it exactly on that day but I do remember the logo on screen I remember the opening sequence with and uh, with Danny Elfman's score and that shot where it looks as if it's going down some sort of canyon and it goes through the da, 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 and eventually it pulls back outwards to reveal the giant bat logo. And even now I get slight shivers up and down my spine when I think about that one shot. Jack Nicholson was was as amazing as people were making him out to be. Although, again, it was the joy of getting to see it on the first day when nobody had seen it before you. So everybody, you know, nobody could spoil it for you. There was, mm. there was no information about it on the internet that could get in your way. Instead, you got to make up your own mind on that. I really liked um, Michael Keaton anyway. I don't think I'd ever seen him in anything prior to that because I think I saw Beetlejuice after. I think I may not have been old enough when Beetlejuice came out to go see Beetlejuice. It might have been slightly too scary for me. I love Tim Burton's direction one way or the other anyway. It's it's a it's a gorgeously put together film. It's funny in places. Even when I saw it again recently, I still laugh at the stuff that I laughed at first time round. It's and you and I were talking about this just just before we started. It's one of those last great grand superhero summer blockbusters before the era of CG. So everything you see in it is physical and real. The stunts that are done that are physical and real. The the nighttime skyline of Gotham is an old an old fashioned traveling mass painting that's physically been drawn by hand. You know, models are used for all of the the bat bits and pieces, the, the, the flying sequences and the, uh, the the bat wing that he uses. I still think even now it has an immense charm. I know that you think it hasn't aged as well as I think it has, but I think it, it, it still holds that, you know, a, an extraordinary place in my heart. To, to be honest with you though, I went to see Batman Returns, whatever, two years later, that was in, in, in UCI, and literally walked out of the cinema, bought tickets and walked straight back in and went and saw it again. I think that is the one thing that the, the second film has slightly surpassed the first film now at this point. Yeah, and, and, and I, I suppose maybe it's just because the first one laid the groundwork. The second one has a lot more going on in it. You know, it, it, Danny DeVito's uh, Penguin is just delicious. And mm. I can still get so much out of it. The set design is amazing. Obviously, Michelle Pfeiffer is in too as well. You've got Christopher Walken turning up being Christopher Walken. Um, uh, so, two, you know, two is great. but uh, And then obviously everything goes rapidly off the edge of a cliff when they fire Tim Burton and then everything goes pear-shaped after that. But yeah, no, I, I, I still think, you know, you asked me to pick one and that was one. And then you guys did the, the 70 mil screening. Of it. Was that last year? My writer is that this year? Uh, that was, was that, March. What year is it right now? That was in March, 2017. Oh, you're kidding me. Wow. Yeah. Holy mother. Because I was, I was there for the 70 mil screening and I remember coming out of it thinking, okay, bits of it have aged questionably, 
but at the same time, I, I, I remember getting the buzz and, and, and thinking about how much, uh, how much I enjoyed it when I, was, when I was that age. And I showed it to my kids. My kids still think it's good fun as well, even though obviously it doesn't have all the banks and whistles that you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff does. It was dark at the time, so obviously it was a, a huge contrast to the TV show that everybody had known. But obviously this is way before Christopher Nolan got his hands on it. Yeah, and for me, uh, you know, I think it's always one of those things whereby if you want to make an interesting superhero film, give it to a director who knows what they're doing. So give it to Tim Burton, who who is not necessarily the first person you would have thought is traditionally the sort of person to make one of those movies. Even the first Spider-Man movie that Sam Raimi made, you know, it had a it had a certain something to it, if not a darkness. Giving Christopher Nolan Batman, I remember seeing Batman Begins the first time I saw that. And thinking, holy moly, now we're in a completely different world. I think The Dark Knight in my head is still probably the best superhero, if you want to call it that film, ever made. I've seen Dark Knight about eight, nine times as well. I, I was there for the preview for the first night that Dark Knight happened in Savoy One again. And the moment, if you've seen it, no spoilers, where the Joker puts the pencil down on the table and makes it disappear and goes, ta-da! Everybody broke it into a round of applause. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, I, I think he did. He took it up a whole bunch of other notches beyond that. Dark Knight Rises, I'm, I'm less convinced by. We could spend a long time having this conversation here. And I can work my <laughs> way through the entire Batman back catalogue. That's entirely up to you. As you, as you mentioned, I don't think it's, it's aged quite as well. It's always the story with these superhero films that it's the villain who takes centre stage rather than the actual hero himself. I think in order for it to be interesting, you got to remember Bruce Wayne's a kind of dull character. Mm. You know, he's a rich guy who's, okay, his parents die and isn't that terrible, boohoo. But he's a rich guy who, you know, has lots of money and can do anything he wants and he has all of the gadgets and, you know, goes out and beats up a few bad guys. In order for the film to be interesting, and that's true of The, the Dark Knight as well, you need your villain to be wildly over the top and yet sociopathic and immensely colourful. It's maybe one of the things that... Um, that Batman Begins slightly suffers from in that your, your villain is ostensibly Ra's al Ghul and, you know, Liam Neeson does a, a really good job of that. And it's an interesting storyline, but it doesn't have the same iconic stats as the Joker does. Casting Jack Nicholson and then actually Jack Nicholson, him getting top billing above Michael Keaton in the film shows the importance of getting Jack Nicholson into your movie. And the fact that he plays it, you know, I, I think Jack Nicholson is rarely as Jack Nicholson as he is playing the Joker. Maybe in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, but he, he takes it, pushes it out as far as he possibly can, has fun dancing to Prince music, and obviously goes home with an enormous paycheck at the end of the day. And he, he, he was one of those things that made it for me. Yeah, sure. You mentioned the, the Prince album there, and it was the, the first single, Bat Dance, was a good, I'm going to say, seven minutes, which is so unusual for a theme song from a film. Yeah, it's appalling. It's terrible as well. Oh my God, it's terrible. I owned the album. I still have my original copy of the, the Batman soundtrack on the vinyl. I listened back to it again when I bought myself a record deck um, like the year before last. Oh my God, it's just appalling. Some of it's okay. Party Man is fine. Bat Dance is just all over the shop. And particularly when you remember, it's Prince. Prince is the greatest. It's his intercutting of stuff from the movie and he throws in different beats and it becomes something. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's wildly all over the shop despite the fact that the album sold tons of time. But it was, a, you know, it, was a, it was a big deal as well, I think, to get somebody who was as cool as Prince was in 1989, not just to record a song for your album, but to record an entire album thematically based around all the characters that you have within your film. You know, that was, it was a big deal. I certainly liked it more than other people did at the time, but I've gone back to listen to it since. It hasn't aged well. 
it definitely hasn't. We're not finished with Batman either, or should I say the Batman, because there's another one planned for next year. Dear Lord, please make it stop. And you know what? I, 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 I have every faith that Robert Pattinson is a, is a really solid actor. So that's a good starting point when you're putting something into a movie of this nature. And obviously look at what's been done with the Joker recently. Wonder Woman is fantastic. I'm fairly sure I will go and see the, the Robert Pattinson movie. Absolutely. It will be through, you know, my fingers. And if it doesn't work out, that's it. I'm done. As you're saying, Wonder Woman 84 um, is due whenever cinemas open back up again. And um, what's the one that you're most looking forward to when we can go back inside? I don't know. There's lo- Again, I was thinking about this the other day because obviously everything has been shunted up. There's, I was listening to somebody talking about this a few weeks ago where you now have a situation where obviously the main tentpole blockbuster movies that major studios are putting out, the ones that, you know, the, the, the Black Widows of this world and the Christopher Nolan's new film, all of that is being held off and the new James Bond film until they can get them into sufficient numbers of cinemas that they can make large amounts of money. To contrast with that, you then have like art house films, which might have been coming out in the red now. And instead, they're going straight to streaming services, which is brilliant because it means we've still got stuff to watch. I subscribed to Mubi for the first time about five, six weeks ago. I've rarely made a better decision. Their catalog of stuff is absolutely amazing. I hadn't seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire in the cinema and I saw it there. I watched Eva the other night on Mubi as well, which is a really solid um, piece of Chilean filmmaking. Um, Gal Garcia Bernal is in it. So that's brilliant. And then it's the ones in the middle that are kind of, you're not overly sure about as to whether or not they're going to be held off or whether or not they may end up on a streaming service. The only exception to that seems to be, sadly, the Artemis Fowl film. And, you know, I, uh, poor Owen Colfer, who's waited forever to see Artemis finally come to the screen, and now it's, it's turning up on Disney+. Plus. To be fair, more people will probably see the Artemis Fowl film on Disney+, Plus than would ever have seen it physically sitting down in cinemas around the world. I am fairly sure that the one I really wanted to see is Christopher Nolan's new film. Uh, Christopher Nolan can make anything. He can, uh, you know, sit Killian Murphy in front of me uh, reading the phone book and I'll watch that for two and a half hours. Uh, so I'm fairly sure about that. I, I know very little about the new Christopher Nolan film because I kind of don't want to. And I'd like to enter into it with as little information as is humanly possible. I try to do that with a lot of movies these days. You know, if I have some vague sense of what they're about, that's fine. But I, I don't really watch trailers if I can uh, avoid them at all. So probably that. I think, I'm thinking, hoping that Black Widow will be, will be really good as well. Anything Pixar put out across the course of the summer should be fun. I also tend to try and avoid lists. And so stuff you know, comes up in two weeks' time and I go, that's great, it's coming out in two weeks' time. That'll be fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Tenet, but I'm also I'm a huge James Bond fan as well, so I'm very much looking forward to No Time to Die in November. And disappointing that, that, that that's been put off for so long. It's, it's strange given that I, I'd started playing the, the, the Billie Eilish um, theme tune, which I think is fantastic, yeah. um, on, on the radio show. And then, obviously, unfortunately, the movie gets bumped out, so everybody stops playing the song, despite the fact that the song is, you know, it's, it's one of the best James Bond theme tunes in years. Yeah, I hope that's, that's, that's going to be great. And I hope that by the time we get to, you know, the pushed out dates for these things, by the time the autumn comes along, that cinemas will be, will be functioning in a way that will make studios happy to put, you know, those kind of big tentpole movies in where they think that they'll make enough money from. That's a, it's, it's a strange one for, for blockbuster movies, this, this, this going forward, I don't know. So there's so much for us to look forward to, both at the IFI and elsewhere, coming later in the year. Ricochet, thanks so much for joining us. My absolute pleasure, anytime.
king in town! Of the many people behind the scenes at the IFI, perhaps among the most crucial is our projection team, who work high above the cinemas, loading and checking digital files, assembling the large number of prints we handle, and ensuring they stay on screen once the lights go down. Paul Markey is one of the IFI projectionists, and is a passionate cinephile, having previously worked at the screen in Delir Street, and at View Liffey Valley. I'm delighted that he now joins us on the iFi podcast. Paul, thanks so much for being here. Hello, how's it going? I know, Paul, in relation to the iFi, nowadays we mainly work with digital files, but we still work with a huge number of different film prints and film stock. That's uh, one of the reasons I love working there. Is it, it appreciates all your skills and that I learned over the years as a projectionist because it's, um, the iFi is the country's archive. So we need to maintain a lot of the older machines because a lot of the archive is still on film stock. So we're capable in there of running everything. And we can do, as well as digital, we can do 35 mil, 35 mil changeover, 70 mil, 16 mil. Um, we have even a Blu-ray connection. But... Um, yeah, it's wonderful. Like we have got the only 70 millimeter projector left in the country, which was amazing foresight years ago. And now it's become an absolute essential tool when uh, there's a resurgence in an interest in 70 mil by a lot of different filmmakers, partly as a response to digital, uh, the evolution of digital cinema and its takeover of uh, how film is presented. For me, that's been probably the jewel of my experience in the iFly because I never... I never really had the opportunity to, you know, to handle 70 millimeter film until I worked there. Basically, you know, t- May 2001, Space Odyssey, now one of my absolute all-time favorite films that I cannot live without. And that wasn't the case until I started working in the IFI. So I try and pride myself in like any challenges we get, any whatever formats we get in, that we will get this on the screen one way or the other. So it's always a... It's ne- never a dull moment, you know, no. uh, usually in bursts, but uh, like you have months of digital and things running smoothly and then you handle a whole load of different uh, precious prints, archive prints. It's uh, excellent. And then the archive prints, I mean, we've, we've had some recent additions in relation to Dunkirk on 70mm when that came out on release in 2017. We had Joker last year, Todd Phillips' Joker on release. And we also had Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which came out on 35mm and when it was released. So we do get those nice mixes of, of new prints and the old archive footage. Dunkirk, I mean, they had a bad at Dunkirk, but I was <laughs> spreading buckets as well. Like, because, you know, being the only cinema that could run it in 70mm and we, we were given that print. I, every morning I was waking up and going in and just concentrating so hard to make sure that nothing was going to happen to this copy of the film. Um, because it's on a screen that big, in a stock that big, it's merciless dust and any potential scratches you might get on it will show up immediately. Um, and it really was, it was a, and, and the film was so successful, it ran for months and it was great, even at this I wouldn't say late in my career, but at this point in my career, it was another wonderful um, learning experience. And you know, it was one of the first times I think we had a brand new 70 mil print that was going to do a proper run. It wasn't special shows. It wasn't just, you know, one a day. It was doing like three or four shows a day, seven days a week for months. So every, every piece of experience came to play dealing with that one. You know? And probably something that people won't appreciate as well is those 70 millimeter projectors, they're noisy. Yeah, yeah, we have to... Uh, during that period, we also were running, uh, we had days when we were running 35 millimeter in, say, screen two, while we were running 70 millimeter in, in screen one. So you had huge amounts of noise coming from either side of you. So it was, you know, ear, ear defenders were essential for weeks in there. And then 
other weeks would follow where it's just digital so all you've got is server fans you know so it really it always changes that place is um, it's wonderfully random sometimes you know the way the schedule works out you know, it's never the same you made a brief re- reference there to something called a changeover print generally kind of an, an older archival print tell us a little bit about how those work well, that was originally how uh, films were projected up until a certain point, um, I think in the early 80s. It was one reel at a time. You would need two projectors to do that. So every, I mean, most people, my generation, is their memories of going to the cinema. And those films were run one reel at a time with a projectionist waiting for, it's often sometimes called the cigarette burns, the, the indicator in the, in the top corner of the screen. Usually it's a, two flashes. The first flash would tell the projectionist, start second projector in the moment you see that flash and the second flash tells the projectionist okay switch over to that second projector and if you do it correctly it's flawless uh, the audience would never know if you're out of sync or if, if you blink at the wrong time sometimes you, it, you might get a flash on the screen but um it, it's it's ideally it's, it's the best way really to show print as far as preserving the real because you don't have to chop it up and we got that facility reached only a few years ago in the IFI, so it opened us up to access to even more better, uh, more precious prints that it would, we wouldn't have been allowed to run because we would have to edit the reels together to get it on the screen. But uh, that requires, you know, if you, you don't do it for, you do it for a certain period and then we wouldn't do it for, say, six months or eight months and then we would get in a print that requires it. It does require you getting the, the brain, the, the mindset again and sometimes just practicing the concentration and getting to know the machines and how quick they react to the buttons so uh, another challenge that i really experienced in the ifi i had i had done it before in, in various uh, screening rooms but i never consistent consistently had the experience of it which was doing those uh, i think it was john ford ones years ago when we had peter bogdanovich over and those prints were so precious it was all changeovers and that was uh, again a sweaty time but a fun time Thinking now about the the proliferation of digital, it means that there's a lot more flexibility nowadays in relation to when you show a film and where. Because I was looking online the other day and I saw a picture of the old Adelphi on Abbey Street and they were literally assigning films to screens at the start of the week because you literally couldn't just keep moving the prints back and forward. You'd have to generally commit to the film to that screen for the week and then, you know, change your schedule then for the Friday when, when new film is opened. Um, with digital, I mean, one of the many wonderful things with digital is you can react from show to show. You can get a single copy of a film and then just ingest it into multiple screens. You, you wouldn't need, you know, for example, say when Rattle Home, Rattle Home opened, it was on in every screen in the uh, Savoy, nearly every screen in Dublin, I think, that for the, for the opening night. They would have had that many copies. They would have literally had a copy for each screen. Whereas now you could just have a single drive and just upload it to multiple servers. And that's a, a wonderful flexibility for the for the business end. And also, you know, for a projectionist, and it's it's great because the film does the digital film never degrades. So the film would look the same from the first day it opened to the last day it showed. Absolutely perfect. And I think that's probably my favourite um, aspect of digital cinema is the lack of wear because, I mean, I remember I've seen some very... Um, I remember I, I lived in Buenos Aires for a couple of years. would go to the cinema there and I remember Jurassic Park was on, it had opened uh, a year ago and the state of the print was just... It was laughable and depressing at the same time. But um, in that aspect, I welcomed um, digital with open arms. It definitely improved. <laughs> You've mentioned a couple of things already around challenging times when it comes to changeover prints and, and other issues. Tell us what has been the biggest projection nightmare that you've heard about. I spent um, nearly a decade out in Little Valley and we had a, because it's 14 screens and you're running 
at least four or five shows in each screen per day. It's, a, it's a, like, you know, keeping plates spinning sometimes. You're running around, you know, the show's finishing, that show's starting. It's Because it was all 35 millimeter. So all physical, you're lacing projectors from one moment to the other. You just, you get alarms going off, you're running. So very much for the physical full on. But we, yeah, we had thing we had, when we first opened, of course, Again, coming back to the, the multiple copies, um, uh, Phantom Menace was showing in every screen, part of the launch of the cinema. Even though I worked there, I had to buy a ticket um, because you know, it was that important. Luckily, I chose a screen where this didn't happen, but in the screen next to me, um, when the film was over, I came out and I saw a lot of white faces and four wrong children and discovered that the, the copy that had run that screen, um, the second reel was upside down, which, you know, uh, there's no way of fixing that. You know, if, if all the reels are spliced together and, and the second one is back to front, you can't fix that. You'd have to let it run through till you get to the right way up on the third reel, but you've ruined the whole film experience. If, if you were doing the changeover system, you could stall it for 10 minutes and then rewind that reel and then put it on properly and just continue on through the film. But, uh, oh man, it's just, if you imagine the decades of waiting for a new Star Wars movie and it craps out after the set it's in 20 minutes in. It sounds very stressful, but I know we were talking before we started recording in relation to something else that used to go on called interlocking. Yes, the, the the coming of digital um, eliminated that um, as an necessity, but cinemas could make a deal. And for example, in their, in their case, I remember that my first experience of this was Pokemon, you know, how popular that film was. It was absolutely gigantic. So I think we had about four copies of it, but uh, two copies of it we interlocked, which is mean you're running one print of a film through two separate screens, two separate projectors at the same time. So the film would appear on one screen, it would then travel across the projection booth in our case around the corner up another corridor and then go through a second projector and so there's kind of like a 30 second delay you could actually watch the film twice i used to do that sometimes with the action films you just keep running backwards and forwards you know just for just to kill time but um if you had an issue if the film broke or something happened on one projector it would be a disaster because you would destroy the show on the second machine which was further around the corner all of the sensors in that were particularly sensitive because it was trying to maintain uh, you know two two shows at the same time but it was the most nerve-wracking absolutely um, i do not miss that and thank god digital was something that made that redundant so essentially, if there's anybody uh, listening in who works on a bomb squad who aren't quite stressed out enough, maybe the world of film projection awaits for them. We were talking to Rick O'Shea earlier on um, about his favourite cinemas back in the kind of the 80s and the 90s. What were your favourites? I mean, I know you used to work in the Screen Delir Street, but I mean, among the Adelphi, the Carlton, all those, what, what were your favourites? My Adelphi was probably my absolute favourite. I mean, I, the first memory I have going to cinema was probably the Metropole, which eventually became the Screen, uh, Peter Pan. But, you know, after that was the state cinema, which was like, if you remember, Dublin, all of Dublin's um, localities had their own cinema back then, and ours in Fibsra was um, the state, and that's where I saw loads of Disney double features. I saw Greece. I remember being offered the option of either seeing Star Wars or Empire of the Ants, and I chose the Ants because <laughs> I was into monsters. And I can't even remember where I saw Star Wars for the first time because it just became so ingrained in in, in my childhood. But um, Adelphi, then eventually it was Adelphi all the time because my grandmother's brother, my great uncle, was um, dormant there. So we my grandfather would often take us to shows. So we saw Superman and I remember Star Trek the motion picture, Flash Gordon. As I became more, got more into cinema, outside, you know, genre films, started to go to lots of other cinemas and Savoy um, Ambassador was great because it was the further end 
the closer end of uh, Collins Street. Carlton was always a bit more, he had a bit more adult comedies and horror movies. So mm -hmm. um, by the time I was old enough to go there, it was a, a bit run down, but it, was, it still was charming. I mean, Carlton one was the kind of weird because it was like the top balcony of the original, you know, 2000 seater Carlton when it was one screen. Carlton 2, which was much more kind of a straight throw. It seemed like a more a natural um, looking place, a screen and uh, so you saw stuff in there like Lethal Weapon for the first time. So I1 was always probably best, I think, the most comfortable and just it felt like uh, an event, no matter what you were seeing there. Um, I can't even comprehend. I mean, that, that place is originally what, nearly 3,000 seats when it first opened. Uh, imagine sitting in a cinema with 3,000 people all laughing at the same time. That must have been huge, wonderful, absolutely wonderful. You know, it's, uh, th Those things I miss even now, you know, even sitting in a cinema with 100 people, you know, at the moment, I just miss that terribly. And tell us a little bit about, as I said, you used to work in the screen in Delir Street. What, what memories do you have of working there? I was back back in Ireland after a few years, and I did a couple of a month or two in the Ambassador because it had reopened. Uh, I think it was on the back of the Titanic, and then they sent me to work. Uh, I wanted to work part time. I said, and which was the best decision I ever made because I, I chose to work. Well, I specifically wanted part time, not full time. I said, well, we'll put you in the screen now. And I was made a kind of usher, security doorman um, in of the Screen Cinema, which was to me. I thought that was one of the first cinema I ever remember going to as a kid. And now they gave me a key. You know, um, and the year I spent a year there, and the people who, who worked there were wonderful. They were kind of the last of the, you know, the original staff of, say, in the fifties and sixties of, of places like the Savoy, and they told me great stories about what cinema going used to be like. And uh, it was it was great working there because it wasn't just a cinema. Like because of that part of town, you get random people coming in. I mean, I remember someone coming in asked me for directions and. And said they hadn't been over this part of town since 1947. You know, <laughs> it's like okay. And because it was a little bit out of the way, you know, you get more say celebrity people would tend to go there, and it would, because the films were a bit more um, leaned towards adult and art, commercial arts cinema. So you got a very specific audience. And then you get exclusives like the, the, the most. I really made my bones there uh, with Life Is Beautiful, which was at the time was an exclusive if you can comprehend that, exclusive wow. to the screen cinema. So it was the only cinema in Dublin showing that movie, and that movie had become, you know, the zeitgeist moment you know, with the Oscars and, um, and because the, the storytelling on it was viewed as very unusual. But yeah, it just became one of those films you had to see. And I don't think they really comprehended how much business was going to be. So literally, it was, every show was packed, especially, you know, the six and eight o'clock shows was just completely sold out, sold out in advance. And it was just me. I mean, it was Monica in the box office and me tearing tickets. And you just, you can remember that lobby. It's not huge at all. So you had people flooding in endlessly, people outside waiting to go in for the next show. And it's, these are not kids. These are all adults. These are all middle-aged. These are all people who come into the cinema because it's the, you know, the latest thing to see. And yeah, I learned that was making my bones as an usher. <laughs> I always think of that movie. I'm sure people would be interested to know, Paul, how did you move from that role as being an usher to being a projectionist? What, what was the kind of the journey in that? I always had an, an, an inkling to be a projectionist or wanted to, you know, at least dabble and, and see what, what the experience of that would be like. Because I'd never really been in the booth, even the years of going to the Delphi. Oddly, go back to the newspapers, there was a small ad in the Evening Herald and it wanted, um, they wanted a trainee projectionist for a cinema in Liffey Valley that was going to open. So uh, I applied 
and he went to went and did an interview and I talked about yeah, my love of film and I talked my dad had a Super 8 camera Super 8 projector when we were kids I'd always messed around with that but I really didn't know what I was in for at all you know because like I didn't really understand this was going to be a multi, mega multiplex of 14 screens 14 projectors to run um, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. So it really was a phenomenal learning experience. And um, if probably if, if I knew what I was getting into, maybe I would have thought about it again. But I was, I was, I was still very sad to leave the screen. I mean, I would have stayed there for God knows how many years if, if that opportunity hadn't come up. Anyone who follows you on social media will know that you, from time to time, post up old cinema ads and old cinema times uh, from a scrapbook you have. Tell us a little bit about those. Proper nerd behavior, yeah. When I was in school, you know, I was, I think for a lot of people in my generation, you know, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, you know, that, that sort of, those sort of, sort of films which, you know, brought, sucked you in to movies. And then when I began to, you know, uh, make the leap into other, you know, I think the first non genre movie I ever went to was probably The Color of Money, the Scorsese film, and that was in Savoy, I remember Savoy one. But I started, um, I started cutting out, you know, the ads in the newspapers um, and then the listings page and I'll keep the ticket stubs. And I think I started about the late 80s. My original one I've lost over the years. Um, I think it was about 86. I remember Fletch, I think, was was the first ones I stuck in that. Um, but I, I have the other one, surviving ones and they're from about, um, I think, 89, 1991 into that point up to, up to the point I emigrated. And now they've become great um you know, memory stones almost. You know, I, I was recently looking. Oh, what's coming up now? I might have seen years ago, and Die Hard, uh, Die Hard Two, um, and I, and I have like six, I think four or five ticket stubs from the Savoy, and I went to see that movie once a week for like four weeks in a row. Um, that was my where, where my head was at the time. But uh, yeah, it's it's hard I mean, nowadays. You know, even the tickets when you go and see a film now, I mean, it's it's you get your ticket stub as your email, or if you get physical ticket stub, it's it's another thing that ink fades, the ink fades, and those things. I kept a number of them over the years, but you go back and look at them, and you can hardly read them. So it's almost uh, uh, you know metaphorical, <laughs> like the memory it slips away. Yeah. <laughs> even the evidence that you ever saw the film slips away, which is um, you know I don't. It's like the long term memory of the original ticket stubs are there permanently, but the more the short term memory is going. You know? <laughs> No, it's, it's quite odd. Well, Paul has very kindly opened his scrapbooks to us and we'll be posting some of his cuttings on our social media channels, so do keep an eye out for those. And if you have any old cinema listings lying around at home, do share them with us on Instagram at Irish Film Institute or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Take care, man. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. May we remind you that for the convenience of those patrons who prefer not to smoke, seating areas on the right-hand side of this auditorium have been designated as no-smoking areas. Your cooperation is appreciated. That's all for this episode. My thanks again to Rick O'Shea and Paul Markey. We'll be back again next Friday. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi Podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.